Well, our sermon text today is Luke 19, verses 37 to 44. The week that is beginning here today and running through next Sunday is sometimes referred to as Holy Week. This is, of course, as was mentioned before, Palm Sunday. Normally, we have children singing on Palm Sunday. Unfortunately, we don't have them here, but I would encourage you to check out the Facebook page if you can, because uh, just this morning I saw Asa and Emerson Morin sang a, a little song for us and posted it to Facebook. We shared it there. Thank you to them for adding that so that we might have that bit of joy on Palm Sunday. Uh, we don't have palms that we're waving, as we often do on Palm Sunday. There are a lot of differences this year than there have been in past years. This week is a, a very special week in the life of the church, and it will be different. Usually we have Thursday night service and a Friday night service. We celebrate the events or remember the events of this week. It's interesting to note that though Jesus lived some three plus decades, that a full one-third of the content of the Gospels focuses on this week in his life. And so, on this Palm Sunday, we begin this week in our lives where he began this week in his life. Jesus has just visited Zacchaeus and has told the people a parable, and he has proceeded toward Jerusalem for the Passover. It's a time when this city of 80,000 people would see its number swell to approximately a quarter million Jews making the pilgrimage to come be in the holy city. We read the words of our Unison Scripture reading together just moments ago. And now we come to the verses that follow it, verses 37 to 44 of Luke chapter 19, where we find one of the few stories that is related to us in all four of the Gospels. Before we do, though, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in odd times. But we find a familiar comfort in coming to you. And so, even though we are separated, we rejoice. We rejoice for you are our God, and though times change and are different, you are unchanging. Great is your faithfulness indeed. And so we ask that you would come and be with us here as we've gathered together in your name, both the very few of us who are here in this sanctuary, and all those who are worshiping with us online, bind us together by your Spirit, and with that same Spirit, lead us in our worship today, and cause our hearts and our minds to apprehend and comprehend your truth, given to us in your Word. For we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 
Follow along now as I read from Luke 19, verses 37 to 44. This is the inspired word of God. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, as I mentioned a couple moments ago, these are challenging, difficult days. Amidst the fears and worries of coronavirus and COVID-19, mixed with the very real possibility of economic hardship and troubles, we have very real reasons to be concerned. And amidst the accompanying strain, it can become very easy to become emotional. Perhaps you've experienced it. Something unexpectedly causes your heart to leap with joy or Perhaps you've been a little quicker than normal to become angry, or maybe you've been unexpectedly moved to tears. In today's text, we see three similar expressions of emotion. We see the joyful praise of the people, the angry chastisement of the Pharisees, and the sorrowful lament of Jesus. First, the joyful praise of the people. In verse 37, we read that as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, and we need to understand where, where and what the Mount of Olives is. It, it was a mount that stood on the, the east side of Jerusalem overlooking the city. It was along the pathway that came from Bethany where John tells us that Jesus had been visiting Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And the whole multitude of his disciples, we read here, were with him. The whole multitude, not just the twelve, but rather 
rather, more and more people that were gathering around him and joining with him. Word has spread of his miraculous works, especially in Bethany where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so it is to be expected that more and more would come following him. In fact, John tells us in his gospel that the reason the crowds went out to see him was specifically that they had heard that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so now the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had seen. Isn't that great? I mean, that's a wonderful thing, right? That, that people would be rejoicing and praising God. That's kind of the idea. That's what we do each Sunday as we gather here together. It is a wonderful thing to be rejoicing and praising God. Why were they doing it, though? Well, the text says it's for all the mighty works that they had seen. Let's go a little bit deeper beyond that. What, what was it about those mighty works that made them rejoice? Well, it could be something quite so simple as this. Uh, when we see something that, that is a, amazing or, or just an expression of God's might and his power, just causes our hearts to worship sometimes. Perhaps you've had that experience if you've stood before uh, Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon, or perhaps you've been up north on a clear evening and looked to the sky and saw the Milky Way all the way across the sky in all its grandeur, and your heart was just caused to worship God because of the work of his hand. Well, that's possible that there were some that were indeed worshiping and praising God in such a way. But more likely, I think for most, there is something else going on here. Now you might say, come on Pete, does it, does it really matter why they came out to meet him? Why they are out there? They are worshiping God. Isn't that all that matters? I would argue, no, that's not all that matters. It is not enough to simply worship God. We must worship him for the right reasons. We don't worship God simply because we think he might do what we want him to do for us. You see, God doesn't exist for our benefit. Rather, we exist for his glory. I'm going to say that again. God doesn't exist for our benefit. Rather, we exist for his glory. But I think they had this all wrong. And we can see it by, by how they worshipped, what they said, what they did. They said in verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And there's nothing wrong, once again, with, with saying these words. These are wonderful words to be saying, as a matter of fact. It's, it's a quotation of the 118th Psalm, one of the, one of the messianic psalms that was routinely sung as pilgrims came to Jerusalem during the Passover. Verses 25 and 26 of that psalm read, Save us, 
we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. You might not have recognized it, but verse 25, that phrase, save us, we pray, O Lord. That's the phrase in Hebrew. Hosanna. We sometimes say, Hosanna. We opened our worship today singing the song, Hosanna. It's a direct quotation from the Hebrew of that Psalm 118, verse 25. And in Matthew, Mark, and John, as they, they specifically mention that this is said by the crowds as they were coming into Jerusalem with Jesus. They cried out, Hosanna! The problem is that this cry of Hosanna was not just a quotation of the holy word of God. It had become somewhat of a nationalistic battle cry, as it were. Kind of of like, for instance, if you were in, in England, you might cry out, God save the queen! And that's really not so much a prayer about your relationship with God and coming before him. Rather, rather it's a nationalistic cry demonstrating a fervor for England and for its well-being as a nation. And that's what it had come to being for for those who were crying out Hosanna in that day. As Paul mentioned before when we were, when we were looking at our Unison Scripture reading, there was this expectation, this hope, this desire, this longing that the Messiah would come, but that he would come to provide political freedom, that he would, he would drive out the Romans, and that Israel as a nation would be able to stand on its own two feet as its own with no interference from outside. They saw it as a as a political freedom that they needed. So they cried out because they believed that Jesus was the one who would provide this deliverance. They had rightly identified Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the one who was to come. But they had wrongly identified what it was that he would provide for them. Look how Jesus comes. They thought he would come as a mighty leader who would lead them in military victory, but note how he comes not in power, but in meekness. Not in glory, but in humility. Not on a war horse, but on the colt of a donkey. You know, I was preparing this week and I came across a poem that G.K. Chesterton wrote called The Donkey. And in that poem, he writes this. When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born with monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things, the tattered outlaw of the earth of ancient crooked will, starve, scourge, deride me, I am dumb, I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour, 
one far fierce hour and sweet, there was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. And just like that lowly donkey, the one who rode upon him was not exactly what would have been expected. The people cry out in verse 38, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And they think that that peace with God, peace in heaven, comes because they'd finally gotten things right. right? If the Messiah was coming finally, it, it must mean that they had done enough good things, that they had gotten their, their act together enough, that they were living the kind of life that God wanted them to live. So now he would reward them by sending the Messiah so they might have the deliverance that they want, that they would get the, the reward, the prize that they had earned somehow through their actions. But this misses the point entirely of how God works. God does not work to reward us for our good deeds and give us the deliverance we need as a result of that. Rather, he blesses us by his grace. Grace is not because of what we have done, but it is in spite of what we have done. And it is why we should cry out to Jesus in praise. We should cry out to him because he has loved us when we were unlovely. He has saved us when we could not save ourselves. He has blessed us when we were dead in our sins, giving us new life that was so undeserved. We need to understand that God's grace is always undeserved. Never what we have earned. And the peace that we have on account of him has nothing to do with anything that we have done and everything to do with him, whom Isaiah calls the Prince of Peace. Beyond that, we need to be aware that the the peace that he is bringing, the redemption that he is purposing, the, the setting of all things right that he is accomplishing is not about an earthly nation. Right? That's what the Jews thought. They thought it was about him setting up their kingdom, their nation. No, it's about the kingdom of God. It's about the kingdom of God, like Paul mentioned before. Right? That he might reign in our hearts, that he might bind us all together, that he might be the king, and that we might live for him. The people of God have always had a habit of getting this wrong. In, in all ages, in all times, we tend to read our socio-political realities into the promises of God. And in so doing... We, we become just like the people of, of ancient Israel who made that mistake, who were, were thinking in terms of, of their kingdom and, and, and failing to see that God's plan was never to set up an earthly ki- kingdom through military strength. See, he's, he's not concerned so much with driving the Romans out of Israel. He's far more concerned with driving the serpent out of the garden and driving sin from our hearts. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came. He came so that sin might be killed in us 
that we who are dead in sin might be brought to life. He came to bear the weight of the punishment of our sins on Calvary's cross, that we might be clothed in his righteousness and live holy lives unto the glory of God. This is why he came. This is why he came, because we could not bear the cost of our penalty. We could not pay the price. It was too steep, too dear, too infinite. There was no way we could have ever atoned for the sins that we have committed, the sin into which we have been born. Even before we have acted, we are already sinners. We are conceived in sin, inheriting it from Adam, our father. We are dead in that sin before we are even born. But Jesus brings new life. Jesus brings new life, and he gives it to us. If only we trust in him. And that is a reason to loudly praise him. Well, we looked at the joyful praises of the people. Secondly, we looked at the angry chastisement of the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him in verse 39, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. See, the Pharisees don't like the ruckus that is going on. They don't like it because they're fearful of the Romans. The Romans who are in control, the Romans who are in charge, have allowed them to have a special place of privilege, and, and the Pharisees don't want the apple cart to get upset. They like the way things are rolling. They're also fearful of the people. They're, they're afraid that the people, if they get too agitated, might rise up and, and cause a, 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 an undercurrent that would just build up and build up and build up, and then the Romans would have to come in and squash it and and cause problems. So there's fear amongst the Pharisees of the Romans. There's fears uh, uh, of the people. And in essence, they're just acting out of self-interest. They, they want to squash things, keep things quiet, keep things running smoothly so that they can continue to occupy their place of privilege. And nothing would jeopardize that. And Jesus says, no, this is not right. He says that even... If the crowd, many of them are praising him for the wrong reasons. In the providence of God, this was the time that he would be praised. He says, if they didn't praise me at all even, I would still be praised in this moment, at this time. The rocks themselves would shout out in praise. You see, because God had appointed that to be a time in his providence where Jesus Christ would be honored and glorified. Now, of course, every time is a good time for Jesus to be honored and glorified. There is no time that is not appropriate for that. But there are special times wherein he is glorified, especially, are there not? That's why we gather together on Sunday mornings, that we might especially honor him and praise him and glorify him and magnify him and worship him. And that's why even though we can't do that physically right now, 
We are continuing to do this online because we value the opportunity to worship him together because it is an appointed time that has been set to worship him. And so we find that important. And we will do all that we can to make that happen. The good thing to know is, no matter what we do or don't do, whatever we achieve or fail to achieve, Christ will be worshipped. Right? It, it's not going to be stopped from happening because we mess up and do the wrong things. It's not going to be stopped from happening because we, we become fearful and, and fail to trust in God. It's not going to be stopped from happening because we're not physically present together with one another. All these things might happen, but they won't keep King Jesus from receiving the praise that is due his name ultimately. In his providence, God is sovereign over all things that were going on in that first holy week. He was sovereign when the praises of his son rang out on Sunday. And he was sovereign when the crowds cried, crucify him. And he indeed was crucified on Friday. In the same way, God is still sovereign today. He's sovereign over coronavirus and COVID-19. It doesn't mean that, that we'll like what comes our way any more than Jesus liked going to the cross. But it does mean we can trust him no matter what comes our way. Just as Jesus trusted him, even as he went to the cross. And this, again, is worth celebrating loudly. Now, that's, that's not normal for us Presbyterians, is it? I, I must say that, that we have somewhat earned the title of the frozen chosen for our lack of passion in worship sometimes. We, we don't express quite as, uh, as, as emotively as some people do. Now, I'm not saying that we should necessarily be putting on a big show for others. That's not it at all. And I'm not saying that there should be a bunch of empty, empty sentimentality. Certainly, that is not the answer either. But if there is no emotion displayed at all, I think it's a reasonable question to ask ourselves, does my heart truly grasp the reality that I was dead in the sins and trespasses in which I once walked, but by grace I've been made alive through faith. It, it should cause us to ask, am I truly excited about the fact that I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. After all, shouldn't it thrill me to know that 
that I once belonged to a kingdom of darkness, but now have been transferred into the kingdom of light. Too often it seems that, that the words that we say and sing do not match up with the way that we say and sing them. We, we talked a moment ago about a donkey. And I, I was thinking about Eeyore from, from the Winnie the Pooh stories, right? And you know Eeyore walked around like this all the time. And I feel like sometimes our worship is like that. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You died for my sins. I once was dead. You brought me back to life. That is no way to praise God. Shouldn't we be excited about that? Shouldn't we have joy in our hearts expressed through all that we are? Thank you, Jesus! You have saved me! Praise God! See, the proper correction to empty sentimentality in worship is not emotionless worship. No, it is, it is rather an emotional expression that is founded in the truth of the gospel, that is grounded in the truth of what God has done for us, both in the, the one hour that we gather together, be it physically or virtually, as well as the other 167 hours each week. Not that Jesus needs us to worship that way. No, it's not that at all. He says it right here that, that you know, God will just cause the rocks themselves to cry out. It's reminiscent of the words of John the Baptist, who, who you'll recall how he, he said that God could raise up children for Abraham from the stones. No, it's rather the fact that we are given the opportunity to be children of God. We're given the opportunity to join in the eternal chorus of those who have praised him we are given the opportunity, and we should take advantage of it. Against the angry chastisement of the Pharisees, we should joyfully praise God. Jesus tells us so. So we've looked at the joyful praise of the people. We've looked at the angry chastisement of the Pharisees. We see here also the sorrowful lament of Jesus. Verse 41, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. What city? Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem, the, the very hub of Judaism, the very hub of, of that religion, the very hub of that geopolitical entity, when he speaks of Jerusalem, it's, it's not altogether different than how we would talk of D.C., right? If, if we were to say, I, I weep for D.C., for Washington, D.C., we're not just saying we weep for, you know, the people who are actually there. 
There's a sense in which we're saying we weep for our nation, right? And so, so it's somewhat akin to that when Jesus is said to weep over the city of Jerusalem. And when it says that he wept over it, we need to understand. I looked up the, the word that stands behind that and uh, kind of read about its meaning. And it, one reference said it meant to weep aloud, expressing uncontainable, audible grief. You see, Jesus didn't just get a little melancholy as he looked at Jerusalem. He, he didn't just sniffle and fight back the tears. He didn't just have them well up in his eyes and one of them slowly roll down his cheek. No. Jesus burst into tears and he sobs over Jerusalem. Sinclair Ferguson points out that it is similar to David, who in virtually the same spot in 2 Samuel 18, after his son Absalom had died, we read, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is how Jesus wept as he looked over Jerusalem. From the depths of his being, from the inside, deepest parts of his soul, with all of his heart, he wept over Jerusalem. That is how he wept. And too often, I think, when we look at Palm Sunday, we, we read about it, we get up to the point where the people are praising him and the crowds are, are yelling and the Pharisees chastise them and Jesus says, if they're silent, even the rocks would cry out and we just end there. We need to realize that this is an important part as well where we see an important and valuable lesson from Jesus. Because too often I think that as Christians, we buy into the false narrative, the false idea that, that now that I trust Jesus, now that I'm walking with Jesus, everything's going to always be happy for me. And, and I should have no sadness in my life anymore. It should always be smiles and giggles for me. There should be unmitigated happiness and anything else is simply a lack of faith on my part. That is simply dead wrong. There is a prominent place in the life of the Christian for weeping. It's consistent throughout the scriptures. In fact, we're told specifically to weep with those who weep. We look at the example of Jesus before he raised Lazarus from the dead and he wept at the tomb. And here once again, his tears freely flow. So why are we to weep? We weep for the same reason that Jesus wept. Because of the brokenness of the world. Because of the impact of sin on all that we see. That is why we weep. Jesus could have wept for himself as he overlooked Jerusalem he saw the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the base of the Mount of Olives. And he knew that he soon would be there. He knew what was coming. 
the sting not only of whips tearing his flesh apart, but also the sting of the betrayal of those closest to him, the denial, their abandonment. He, he knew that the excruciating pain was coming not only from spikes driven through his arms and his legs, but even more so the pain of feeling forsaken by his father with whom he had experienced perfect fellowship for all of eternity past. He knew that agony was coming, not only the agony of suffocating to death as his own weight hanging on the cross made it impossible for him to breathe. But also the crushing weight of the wrath of God that would be laid upon him because of our sin. He knew this all was coming his way. It was all coming his way, and yet that is not what moved him to tears. He is not concerned in that moment about himself, but rather his concern is for the people of Jerusalem who are like lost sheep without a shepherd, and Jesus with a shepherd's heart weeps over them. Would that you, even you, verse 42 reads, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. There is a terrible irony there, is there not? The city of Jerusalem, Yaru Shalom, Hebrew for foundation of peace. It's in the name. It should be the place of ultimate peace. And yet, they don't even know where to look for peace. They were looking not for the peace that God was offering, but for a different type of peace. It was an idol for them. And just like every other idol, God will eventually tear down our idols. And so he would ultimately tear down that one. Verse 43, Jesus says, The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And Jesus' words would prove to be prophetic. For we know now that in 70 AD, the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem. And indeed, they laid waste to it. Josephus writes about it in his History of the Jewish War. While the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests alike, were massacred. The emperor ordered the entire city and the temple to be razed to the ground, leaving only the loftiest of the towers and the portion of the wall enclosing the city on the west. All the rest of the wall that surrounded the city was so completely razed to the ground as to leave future visitors to that spot no reason to believe that the city had ever been inhabited. You see, what was coming their way was the complete antithesis of the peace they were seeking. And Jesus knew this was coming. They thought the peace would come through military and political means. But true peace only comes through Jesus. Through his sacrifice on the cross. Through faith 
in him. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, Jesus says. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And just like they were in that day, we live in a world where everybody is looking for peace in all the wrong places. So as we do this, we, like Jesus, ought to be people who weep. We ought to weep first over the brokenness and sin of the world and, and, and specifically of our own. Our own sin ought to be the first sin that we weep about. When was the last time that you wept over your sin? Not wept because you got caught in your sin. Not wept because of the consequences of your sin. Not, not wept because of any of that, but, but just wept over the brokenness that you have experienced as a result of your sin because you were so grieved over it. Not empty sentimentality, not crocodile tears just for the sake of show. No, it's... it's just that things ought to grieve us that grieve Jesus. And our sin grieves Jesus. And if this is the case, then we should grieve over the sin of others as well. We should grieve over their lostness that they have not recognized the Messiah's hour, their hour of visitation from the, the Messiah. We should, we should be overjoyed at the opportunity to share this truth with them, but we should weep at their lostness. Too often, I think, the church... Uh, scornfully and pridefully acts pharisaically actually and, and it's proudly judging others in their sin that should not be our reaction our reaction should be to sob over their lostness and to share with them the way to peace and so in closing i have one final question for you do you know the time of your visitation where God has come near in the person of Jesus Christ he who is Emmanuel God with us maybe he's not exactly what you expected maybe he's not exactly what you wanted but I assure you this he is exactly what you need so so turn to him today. Turn to the one who is the Prince of Peace. Turn to him and come to know the peace that surpasses all understanding. One that transcends circumstances and exists for eternity. One that, that, that is not just for the hereafter, but is also for the here and now. Even if the here and now includes coronavirus and shelter-in-place orders, even if it includes economic uncertainty and hardship, even if it includes loneliness and anxiety, even if it includes sickness and, yes, even death. If you need peace, and we all do, turn to Jesus now. Turn to him that it may be well with your soul. Amen. Lord, we thank you that indeed Jesus is the Prince of Peace and that through him we might know your peace. I pray that it might be the case with all who are hearing my voice now, 
that you might work in their hearts, that they might truly have faith in you through him and know that peace. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We sing now hymn number 476, It is well with my soul.